0: welcome to another episode of all the rage at the moment we are taking a look at current events over the past few weeks there's been a lot of things in the news cycle um, not least the january 6 commission hearings as well as a slew of decisions that have come down from the supreme court many of which are directly influenced by far-right christian ideas and activism so we're going to take a look at those in this all the rage at the moment The day that we're recording this is Tuesday, June 28th. Uh, there was some pretty explosive testimony today that came from the Hill. Cassidy Hutchison, a former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, testified some, some pretty explosive things. Nick Don, why don't you run down what we've learned both today and in the course of the hearing so far?
1: Well, today's hearings were kind of convened at the last minute, right? They had a Surprise guest. Yeah. So they had announced. Uh, when was the last one? At the end of last week or the middle of last week, they had announced that they weren't go- they weren't planning to have any more until after the July fourth uh, recess. And I think that the next one was initially scheduled to be the last one. I-, I believe that's still the case at this moment. But we'll see if what came out today makes any difference to that, or if they extend it uh, to bring in more. Uh, information about it. Uh, But the the most explosive things that came out of today really tie uh, Trump and Giuliani and Meadows very particularly to um, foreknowledge of the likelihood of violence going on on the 6th and direct awareness on the morning of the 6th of the, the presence of uh, armed individuals, including people with firearms, uh, in the crowd before Trump spoke to them, right? Which speaks to some, you know, he has these ambiguous phrases that he uses when he's speaking to the crowd, you know, you're, you're going to fight for me. We're not going to let this fight. Uh, we're not going to lose this fight, uh, that kind of language that you can kind of ambiguously sum up as well. It, it's political, uh, rhetoric. It's meant to be over the top. Whatever, Or you could read it as a uh, literal incitement to violence. And so the, the awareness that many of the people in that group were armed, um, in some cases armed with AR-15s, <laughs> and were turned away from the area uh, where Trump was speaking before they uh, went down to the Capitol at his instruction, uh, at the security area there, were either turned away if they refused to turn in their weapons before they entered um, or were disarmed into that area. And Trump was apparently, uh, according to Hutchinson was frustrated that the, the crowd size wasn't bigger, or at least didn't look bigger because a lot of people were milling around outside of the the cordoned area precisely because they didn't want to go through the security checkpoint and turn in whatever weapons they had. And so Trump was saying, take down the security checkpoints, they're not here to hurt me, right? Speaks to what he knew before he said the things that he said and so potentially relevant, but also lots of uh, lots of language around, you know, the uh, Giuliani in, in the lead up referring to the fact that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were going to be there on the 6th. So they show knowledge of some of the more um, outrightly violent elements of the of the insurrection. What what stuck out to you?
0: Yeah, certainly that the the testimony that he uh potentially tried to assault the Secret Service agent who was driving his vehicle that wouldn't let him go. Apparently Trump uh wanted to go join the the protesters at the Capitol um and when his Secret Service agent denied him uh, Reached his hand out towards him, which some have interpreted as an attempt to, to choke him, or that that actually happened. Um, but then, with regards, can you to- imagine?
1: <laughs> I I can't honestly. I, POV. Donald Trump is trying to choke you. What are you doing? <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's it seems far fetched, but I, the, the whole day was so crazy. Uh, but then she talked about notifications that the the crowds were were wanting to hang Mike Pence and and basically Trump said, you know, well, he deserves it, um, which seems to be corroborated by several people. And, and again, it's, it's Donald Trump, right. Who speaks extravagantly on a regular basis, right. Um, claims he could shoot somebody on fifth Avenue. You know, would he really do that? Does he really think Mike Pence deserves it? Is he just expressing his emotion, but still um, all of these things, right. You, you, you might have plausible deniability, on one count, but you, you line all of these things up and it really seems as though he knew what was going on. And, and uh, we've got a, uh, a situation here that sounds, sounds a lot like I wish someone would rid me of this meddlesome priest. So yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's pretty clear that Trump knew, uh, what was going to happen, what was happening, uh, was supportive of it. And I don't think that any of it matters. Because I don't think anybody's mind is going to change. And there's a part of me that really wonders how many people in the secrecy of their own homes and hearts and minds would have preferred that it was successful. And nobody's saying it out loud. Um, But I, I don't know of anybody yet who has paid attention to these hearings and said, oh, you know what? Yeah, I, uh, I changed my mind. I think Trump was probably wrong. I think, you know, the election was probably free and fair. I don't know what difference any of this is going to make short of somebody actually prosecuting. And even then, you know, is that going to be interpreted just as some sort of witch hunt or martyrdom? I don't know. Uh, but I, I don't have warm and fuzzy feelings about any of it.
1: So if, if, you, had to, if you had to put down a bet today on whether the – Department of Justice is going to prosecute, do you have a, do you have a feeling?
0: I would bet that not Would money you put down a high bet? <laughs> I, I'd put down a significant bet that they won't prosecute. Uh, I think they should. I think uh, I saw something recently about historically countries in the grips of corrupt dictators only began to find uh, reform after the corrupt dictators were prosecuted. Uh, that that is a necessary step in restoring uh, a sense I don't want to use the word order because of the way that's been um, but of rightness. Uh, so I think they should,
1: but I think they won't. What about you? I think that they will see the stakes involved both in terms of what if you do and what if you don't. And there are serious stakes if you do and, you know, it goes like the first impeachment or like the second impeachment or like the, the Mueller investigation uh, and just nothing comes of it. Like, it seems like there are high stakes to, to doing that mm-hmm. and failing. And I think that they'll quail before those stakes. But to, to me, from every, everything I've seen, I think it is is beyond demonstrable that Trump knowingly and willfully engaged in treason and incitement in treasonous incitement and a deliberate effort to overturn the results of an election without concern for the the fact the factitude or the rightness or wrongness of his claims with a complete indifference to the the truth involved which i mean characterizes i think his uh, entire person, right? Both in in business and politics, and I think he established a sort of playbook for that. That if you don't, yeah, you know, the talking of consequences, talking of the stakes involved. If if you don't show that there are, are massive consequences to doing that, then uh, then you're you're setting up the electoral system to just be a constant game of brinksmanship and just enabling the next person who has the will to do that, to do it. And if you get away with it, then fantastic. And if not, then then no blood, no foul. And that's not a functional way for a democracy to exist.
0: Right. I remember growing up a lesson that I learned just, you know, country wisdom, right, is you you teach what you allow. And so, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. If there's if there's no consequences for this, then there's nothing that is preventing somebody from trying again in the future. Um, and now, you know, in a sense, some of the weaknesses have been exploited. Had there been had there been more guns, um, or even just more organization and leadership, uh, it, it would have been a very very different day. Yeah. And so, without somehow strongly disincentivizing it. I think we're at risk of of something like that happening again and we're already seeing in certain states the refusal among republican lawmakers to certify election results that don't go their way calling into question the integrity of elections and and we're not even at the at the general heck we're not even at the at the um real primaries yet uh, you know we've got some of that so yeah without some way of, of establishing this i've got serious concerns about uh 2024 especially given the fact that i a significant portion of our population does not actually care about the truth. They don't care that there is no evidence that it wasn't a rigged election. They sincerely believe from the bottom of their heart that it was. And so without some sort of mechanism for making it abundantly clear, you're, I think we are uh, at, at a precipice of something very, very dangerous not to be alarmist
1: or anything. Well, as, as, as cringy as the, like anti-Bush, Comedy Central, uh, you know, Daily Show and Colbert Report kind of, uh, n- you know, nor- normy liberal, you know, p- you know, pre-hashtag resistance. Um, a- a- as as cringy as that could kind of be at the time, in retrospect, um, on it was his very first or second episode. Colbert was doing this thing where he would introduce uh, a word of the day. And some of those first ones really did capture um, key insights into what America was becoming. And it was either the first or second uh, or or third. It was right in the beginning. Uh, his word was truthiness. Truthiness, yeah. Because the definition is just, well, does it feel true? <laughs> and just really, really prescient stuff on that. Prescient, really prescient stuff in that. Because um, that is that's where we live now like truthiness is all that matters it's it's truthiness all the way down it's true
0: (laughs) that feels true it feels true i I experienced that is true (laughs) yeah so that's been big in the news um more to come likely by the time this is this is released this may be obsolete by the time we we put it out um, but that's not all that's been happening. Uh, there's been a slew of Supreme courts decisions that have come out in the past few weeks that have been causing a lot of stir. Um, probably the most have been good ones or bad ones. Well, it depends on where you sit, <laughs> what you experience <laughs> as true. Uh, I think we regard them. as not great, um, as being, you know, ideologically driven, um, you know, I think it's the
1: worst SCOTUS year ever.
0: Don't hold back. I, How do you really I, feel?
1: I think that there have been like there there are historically bad decisions and there have been bad eras. You know, the Lochner era is kind of I mean, that's almost synonymous with the concept of just absolute corruption and anti human, anti flourishing kind of uh legislation for you know tending toward fascism, the, the state and corporate alliance um, that crushes individual liberty. Uh, but in terms of a single year and a single year's worth of decisions, it's hard to think of a, of a term that that could compare to this one. We are obviously recording, this is our first recording since the Dobbs decision has been rendered official, right? So if you haven't heard our... our episode on the leaked draft of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, um, then check that out. Links in the show notes. If you're watching this on YouTube, you'll see it right there. Go go see our analysis on that. And so that's, for understandable and obvious reasons, getting a lion's share of the national media attention right now. But just it's just one in a, a absolute bevy of just disastrous decisions that really signal uh, how, how far right this court is. It's amazing that even with the seating of Amy Coney Barrett, there were, there were respectable – well, there were respected voices in legal journalism. People who – their whole beat is watching the Supreme Court and reporting on the court, uh, characterizing it, translating it for us normies saying things like yeah you know, this is finally you know John John Roberts uh, crowning achievement we have what we have here is a 333 court it's divided three ways between the conservatives and the Liberals and then in the middle you have John Roberts and his uh, deal makers and just one term in one term later just the most far-right reactionary insane court, uh, issuing just decision after decision that def- defies precedent, but more importantly, uh, just comes to just uses crackpot reasoning to come to the most uh, radical, uh, anti majoritarian, repressive, rights stripping, future denying decisions possible, right? And so for just, just in the past couple of weeks, there's a, a few that fall into a couple of different categories. Um, but let's start, let's start talking about uh, religious freedom. I saw you were going uh, hot and heavy on some decisions around uh, prayer at a, at a high school football game. Is that?
0: Yes. Yeah. So the, uh, the case was Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. Uh, and what, what had been going on, um, there was a coach, Coach Joseph Kennedy, uh, who had been leading prayer at the 50-yard
1: line uh, with some of the players who wished to participate. Um, so to be clear, the that, 50-yard line, is that that's, <laughs> that's that's in the middle-ish? Right, right, right smack dab in the middle, um,
0: okay. right in the middle where, where everybody can see it. Um, so... <laughs> This is the game where they they throw the ball and score touchdowns. Um, it's
1: a pigskin.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's the game we're talking about. Okay. Um, so he's he's leading prayer there with some of his students, uh, and the school asks him to stop. Uh, the The concern that's cited is that um, apparently some of the students feel that it's coercive, like they are. Uh, like they need to participate, not that they're told that they have to participate, but you know how the unspoken pressure and and situations like that goes. So there's this coercive pressure that you have to participate in the prayer if you want to be in the, you know, well-regarded by the coach. Um, And then the school's official concern was that it could be viewed as an endorsement of a specific religious practice. Uh, And so that sort of becomes...
1: So if the coach of the football team prays and has his students pray... Christian prayer after the game that could be seen as an endorsement of the Christian religion by the school because he's an employee of the school. Is that
0: right? Right. And that others could see that. Yeah. that That the school is promoting the Christian religion by having an employee lead these voluntary, but as some students suggested, Perhaps coerced prayers, so that that's the school's the school's complaint. Uh, makes it up to the Supreme Court, um, where that decision is overturned. The, the the decision to tell the coach that he can't pray is overturned. It was uh, Neil Gorsuch who wrote for the majority, arguing that free religious expression is a constitutional right and said that the school did not have the evidence to to back up their claim that this could be viewed as a official endorsement of religion and and instead gorsuch feels that it's pretty clearly just an individual expressing his individual religious freedom just happens to be a employee of the school at the center of school property, football field with students. A lot of now, people hasn't the,
1: hasn't the standard for a long time been students are free to have like you know voluntary prayer groups or or worship groups or you know those kinds of religious affiliations um, and can even have a faculty sponsor, but that it has it just has to be clear that it's student led. As is that far as I... the
0: standard. As far as I know, yes, which is which is why teacher led prayer in classrooms is you know traditionally been like a no no. So there's a lot of people who are who are either on one hand concerned or on the other hand excited that this once again opens the door for uh, teacher led prayer in schools. But there's a lot of people who are concerned who are I'm not constitutional expert, you know, uh, legal expert. Um, And I'm not an expert on this case, but there's a lot of people who have been looking at it who think that the justices were just clearly dishonest in their framing of the actual facts of the case. Um, I was reading one article where a a university, a Virginia law professor by the name of Douglas Laycock um, was writing. And apparently he's somebody who usually uh, files briefs siding with religious advocates. I'm reading from an article on NPR here. But Laycock called this ruling, quote, fundamentally dishonest and um, just says basically that the justices lied about the the actual facts regarding the situation in order to give the coach the pass to go with it so that, that his the prayers were not quiet. They were not private. They were they were very loud and public and, and, and well-known. Um, and so there's a lot of people who think that the, the justices in this case were just blatantly dishonest regarding the facts of the case in order to give – the verdict that they wanted to give in order to uphold people on the right would say religious freedom. I might use the phrase Christian supremacy.
1: Right. Because the, you know, the court is, is considering issues of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, uh, religious liberty versus the establishment clause. And uh, so they have multiple different tests and, Categories into which or by which they can consider these cases and the through line seems increasingly clearly increasingly often to be that, well, Christians have this freedom and uh, minority religions of whatever stripe don't, right? Right,
0: right, yeah, Um, and so and this this does seem to fly in the face of precedent ruling against teachers leading prayers. So that that really does call into question what's going to happen with that. Uh, And it's just another case similar to Dobbs, which we talked about in a previous episode and finally came out, where precedent just seems to not really matter so much anymore uh, with this court in particular. Uh, They seem to tacitly acknowledge that it exists and then no longer uh, is applicable for
1: reasons. So another case that was handed down slightly before the Kennedy decision uh, is one called Carson v. Macon, not to be confused with Machen, who we'll get to in later episodes. (laughs) Um, Carson v. Macon is looking at a policy that Maine has used to disperse funds, public funds from taxpayers to... On non-public schools, because in Maine, especially in rural Maine, it a lot of the population density in some of these counties is so low that to attend a public school, uh, some students would have to you know, drive an hour or be commuted an hour to school and then an hour home in the evening. And so to alleviate some of that, they created a policy a piece of legislation by which public school funds could be uh, allocated to non-public schools as long as they were not explicitly sectarian in nature, which includes religious schools as long as the education offered by that religious school met the same kinds of accreditation standards as public schools and was not um, in a sectarian way dedicated toward the the conversion of... The, the students or upholding a, a specific uh, religious function. Right. And so that would enable students to still get a, you know, demonstrably solid education uh, without having to, you know, go three counties over or whatever. Uh, and so it was a, a, a pretty judicious compromise, right. By what was actually a democratic majority state, uh, Sort of creating a kind of school choice or vouch- a limited school choice or voucher system, right? And in fact, uh, parents were all pretty happy with this. And the, the case that was brought was not actually brought by disgruntled parents. It was brought by an American religious liberty advocacy organization that's basically just a conservative like law firm called the First Liberty Institute, Uh, Not to be confused with the first Freedom Coalition, which is (laughs) what Project Blitz rebranded into after all of their internal documents leaked. Uh, But is fundamentally similar, right? Like they're a a conservative activist uh, group who are working to uh, essentially destroy public education. Like they just want – like by any means possible, they want to uh, undermine – Uh, public education. And so this was a means possible. So they uh, took up a lawsuit against the restrictions built into this, which would mean that even schools that are narrowly sectarian or religious in nature would receive public funding, which means, well, and so the way that it's a, it's, a, it's incredible, right? Because the whole idea of the Establishment Clause is that the government should not establish a religion to which all citizens, regardless of their own personally held beliefs, have to pay homage or are bound to in material ways, including in financial ways, right? Like Jefferson explicitly writes against the idea that you might have to... Um, pay tithes to a church that you are not a voluntary member of right 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 and so the idea of public taxes going to private Christian schools or private Muslim schools or what have you is a vi- you know it's it's a tacit taking of the public funds and giving them to a private, um, religious organization, which is just straightforwardly and explicitly, like it is the most obvious, uh, violation of the establishment clause.
0: Right. Sh- but short somehow of, it's sort of saying you, you have to be baptized, you know, or face state punishment. Right. Right. Short, Instead short it's of you, that, you
1: have to give your money, you have to tithe or face state punishment. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, uh, Right. Uh, But uh, so it was a 6-3 decision, uh, as they all tend to be these days. Uh, But the majority opinion was written by Roberts, and he says, the state pays tuition for certain students at private schools so long as the schools are not religious. That is discrimination against religion. Which, you know, like with the Bremerton case, is just factually inaccurate, right? Religious schools could receive, and in fact do do receive under the the previous legislation, um, do receive funding if they meet certain accreditation standards, if the education – if the educational curriculum itself that they're offering is parallel to what is offered in public schools, then they can receive it. So it's not – the test is not are you a religious school or not. It's is the nature of the education that you offer one of general education or is it one of uh, just indoctrination, right? And so now you'll have uh, private Christian schools. And then, you know, there are concrete examples of this. You can go to some of the websites of some of these schools who are named in the petition, and their curriculum includes, um, you know, young earth creationism. Uh, the school. These are schools who do actively discriminate. You know, the language he uses, um, if the state pays tuition for certain students at private schools, that is discrimination against religion. Meanwhile, some of these schools don't accept uh, students who are not Christian, or students who are LGBTQ, or whose parents are LGBTQ. So these are schools that practice explicit discrimination. Right. But now, if you are a resident of the state of Maine, you are legally required to pay taxes that go to fund these schools. Right. And in fact, these schools, some of them, offer uh, defense of the faith classes or apologetics classes. And and in at least one case, explicitly stating uh, a, a course that is designed to teach students how to... Confront and disprove the false claims of the Muslim religion. Wow. So if you're a Muslim who lives in the state of Maine, you are now paying taxes in order to educate other people's children to disprove your faith. So it is explicitly a, uh, an enforcement of you know, particularist religious views onto the public at large uh, right. upheld by the, by the court in the name of freedom of freedom of religion. Right. Right. And, and so it's always the freedom of the Christian religion to impose itself on the public at large. And there are all these you know, the, all these memes, when the decision was announced, there were all these memes on Twitter, like, oh, just wait until the satanic temple opens its public school in Maine <laughs> and the, your, your taxes have to go there. Um, which a will never happen, like opening a. There's a reason that this Paul that this uh, sort of school voucher light policy went into place, and it's because it is extremely expensive and onerous and difficult to open a public school in the state of Maine, particularly in these rural areas, right? Like right. we're talking, you know, this isn't uh, t- ten thousand bucks to to build a, a Baphomet statue uh, and have it displayed alongside the Nativity scene at the <laughs> what was it, uh, Tulsa uh, s- uh, City Building or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's not. It's not the kind of thing you can stunt, right? It's a millions dollar uh, project. That's just. It, I mean, it's it's not feasible. It's silly, but also. This court isn't bound by, the, you know, consistency in its decision making. Uh, <laughs> they they won't they just won't give they just will, you know find find the reason to to state the exception to the policy and say, well, that's off limits. Obviously, well, cer-
0: certainly this court wouldn't overturn decades of precedent just for ideological reasons. <laughs> Uh, But I, I think Justice Breyer, in his dissent, really sort of nailed what you're getting at here as well. He says, the First Amendment begins by forbidding the government from making any law respecting an establishment of religion. It next forbids them to make any law prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Then he writes, the court today pays almost no attention to the words in the first clause while giving almost exclusive attention to the words in the second uh, in other words, saying that the court seems to be mostly concerned about not uh, prohibiting the free exercise of, of religion, uh, but does not pay any attention at all to things that might have the the specter or even the reality of establishing religion. And I think one of the things you're trying to point out here that, that needs to be said is that when we read religion here, we, we really ought to read Christianity, right? Um Because for the most part, when we talk about religious liberty, it's really just Christian liberty, and specifically conservative Christian liberty. And you're right; the the court, Justice Breyer, knows this. The court seems to exclusively protect any sort of Christian interest almost as a first principle, right? And then find ways to justify that post hoc.
1: And some people are willing to just come out and say that. Right, and in fact, to celebrate it, and particularly folks on the so, sometimes just on the cultural right, but also explicitly on the Christian right. Um, so, in in response to the Bremerton decision, do you know who uh, Peg O'Brien on uh, on Twitter is? Peg O'Brien on on Twitter has around forty thousand followers, um, but he he's written he's a member or a fellow, I guess, at uh, EPPC, which is the Ethics and Public Policy Center. We've talked about them before. They are a think tank dedicated to promoting uh, Judeo-Christian values uh, in the United States. They're a big uh, think tank and uh, activist group aimed at pushing Christian nationalist legislation uh, straight up. Um, and, you know, he's also written for The Week and American Magazine. Like, he's, he's kind of a... a Trumpist nationalist guy. Um, but he, he tweeted uh, earlier today about the Bremerton case. Everyone will want to own the libs by saying, yes, I would be fine with a Muslim coach saying a prayer before the game. But this is wrong. Christianity is a part of American history, heritage and tradition. And Islam is not. It's perfectly appropriate to treat them differently. So just just coming out and saying the quiet part loud, right? It's it's about Christian supremacy. It's about Christian nationalism and ensuring that the laws of the country uh, enforce that. And now that we have this uh, reliable conservative block on the Supreme Court, we can just ram ram it all through, right? Right, and that's it's not so
0: extreme of a mindset that, as to be fringe. I'm trying, I think it was, was it Candace Taylor? She was, she was running for, um, Oh, Georgia. She was running for governor in Georgia or let me look this up really quick. Um, I think it was her who who basically said, you're free to be whatever religion you want to be in the United States, but that's not what's going to rule the land. We're, we're, we're going to rule by Christianity. Um, right. She was running for governor in, in Georgia, And I'm pretty sure she's the one who said that. If if not, it was somebody else. There's been enough of them. Um, Also from Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about how uh, Christian nationalism is good, actually. Um, So we have a a significant gubernatorial candidate as well as a sitting representative who are saying from official platforms that they endorse uh, Christian nationalism as the, the ruling law of the land. Um, So these are not remarkably fringe concepts. Um, And now it it seems as if, you know, the justices of the Supreme Court, I think, are smart enough to not say that explicitly, but it sure seems like they believe that. And then they're finding whatever legal justification they can uh, scrounge up to support that.
1: Yeah, that that seems seems correct. Yeah, I, I was just looking it up. Candace Taylor is the one who had the campaign bus. Have you seen Jesus this? Guns Babies. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. But I think so, yeah. I think she has a, a quote saying specifically, it's not talking about separation of church and state. You know, it basically saying, don't talk to me about separation of church and state. Church and state was written because the state has no business in our church, but we are the church. We are the church and we run the state. So pretty explicit endorsement there of uh, what we're seeing played out in the Supreme Court. And so we have explicit endorsements of Christian supremacy, Christian nationalism from not insignificant political players who uh, have a, in one case, electable to, to federal office, and in another case, you know, running for governor and not winning, but garnering significant support. So these are not remarkably fringe ideas. Uh, and as we said, we're, we're seeing them sort of endorsed by the court in not so explicit language, but certainly in effect.
1: And and we know that it's that those are not um, those are not unusual perspectives to hear in the white evangelical church, right? No, I. I I'm sure that you've been as exposed to it as I have. It's the the phrase the separation of church and state was meant to protect the church from the state, not the other way around, is bo- boilerplate. It, it is the standard line in evangelical uh, churches to the degree that they talk about, you know, explicitly talk about politics, right? But to the to the second point of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's statement, She's been re- really willing to just come out and own the Christian nationalist label, and she's not alone. Um, and I'd say, especially in the in the crowing over Dobbs, a lot of people who even a week or two ago would have been kind of shy about uh, adopting or embracing the label Christian nationalist have simply come to embrace it and said, "Well, Christian nationalism got us Dobbs, right?" Right. And in a I don't know. There's two ways of looking at that. And, and on the one hand, and the same thing with uh, Peg O'Brien's statement earlier where he says, no, this it, it, Christian – Christianity and Islam should be treated differently. On the one hand, there's a real convenience, I mean for our project, that they'll just come out and say it, right? Like it, uh, it, it leaves a lot less for us to try to prove and we look a lot less like the you know the guy with the red string on the board. And so it, it – and as something to organize against, when people will just come out and tell you who they are, that can be useful. But on the other hand, I think to the degree that it's reflective of how successful their movement is and how powerful they feel, I think it's telling about what a potentially dangerous time that it is precisely because they're willing to come out and, and say the quiet part loud.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, to go back to Candace Taylor, she had another quote where she basically said that she would have sheriffs shot by a firing squad if they failed to uphold the Constitution because that was the Constitution's prescription for treason. Right. Um, So absolutely, you know, willingness to talk in violent language uh, and it appeals this le- this appeals to so many people who are in the pews, who um, are scared. They look at the economy. Um, they, they look at crime rates. They look at all these things. They're scared. And so we know the power that this kind of rhetoric has over people who are afraid. Um, and I think people who are willing to own it so boldly, just like Trump did, are going to find appeal among people who are, who are terrified, um, and who identify as Christian and who are looking at, uh, a nation that is becoming increasingly less white over time, um, you know, it, I think it's gonna, it's gonna sound really good to a lot of people. Yeah. And the fact that they're owning it just makes them look tougher. Makes them look bolder, makes them look, um, less intimidating, which is what people are looking for.
1: Yeah. and. Speaking of fear, speaking of crime rates, there's uh, the final section or category of recent Supreme Court decision that we should talk about is uh, a couple of cases that relate to the civil rights that citizens have against police or specifically against excesses or abuses by police forces or federal agents uh, who are enforcing the law. And so there's uh, two decisions that came down just recently, Egbert versus Buhl and uh, Veda versus Teco are are two related cases, the former relating to federal law enforcement, specifically Border Patrol, and the latter applying to uh, local police uh, districts. And the context for both of these is uh, in your Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment rights, you have the right against unreasonable search and seizure By law enforcement and you have right against self-incrimination, which extends to a positive right to remain silent and to not have that silence be construed as evidence against you. Right. Um, And the and one of the uh, most positive applications of a constitutional right um, in the, the case Miranda v. Arizona, the Supreme Court, this is back in the 60s. Um, 1966. Uh, the Supreme Court held that that there is actually a positive duty on law enforcement agents to inform you of your Fifth Amendment right prior to any questioning, uh, in any in any uh, investigation, right? Which is, uh, in my mind, that is the model for how you take a right in theory and make it a right in practice is you actually create some sort of positive responsibility that the person who might potentially be violating those rights uh, is re- is required to do in order to uh, instantiate the right or make concrete that right in your particular situation. Right. But that's that's just an aside. Miranda v. Arizona. Uh, great decision. Uh, I'm sure we will see it overturned any day now.
0: Um, But we partially
1: saw it overturned in this decision, right? So uh, partially. But um, in order to make these rights substantive, the courts have held that you have sort of two lines of defense if these rights are violated. And one of those is the exclusionary rule which is to say if police violate your Fourth or Fifth Amendment rights and so uh, unreasonably search your person or your domicile, find evidence, the fact that they violated your Fourth Amendment rights means that that evidence, even if it would be otherwise uh, convicting, has to be excluded from the case against you because they violated your rights in order to obtain it. And then likewise, if a law enforcement agent um, doesn't Mirandize you, doesn't inform you of your right against uh, testifying against yourself, then any information that they obtain is also excluded. And so the exclusionary rule is, um, it's intended to create a disincentive against the kinds of things that we see in, in cop movies where a dirty cop, he just he just knows this guy did it, but he can't prove it. And so he goes beyond the bounds of the law and get, you know, breaks into his house and gets the, gets the evidence Um, Well, we don't want to incentivize that kind of behavior, and so we can – the fact that it won't actually accomplish anything, it has to be excluded, is meant to be a disincentive against uh, violating it. But a secondary disincentive is if a law enforcement officer or agent, a Border Patrol agent, whoever it is, uh, does violate your rights, and that includes search and seizure, that includes – uh, not Mirandizing you or not, or it, attempting to use coerced testimony um, against you in court, or, and this extends beyond those two, uh, if they use excessive force against you, you additionally have the option of filing a civil suit against that officer, right? Right. Um, and that's that's also meant... Uh, both as a disincentive against an individual officer to do those things, because they might potentially have some liability. Um, although, in actual practice, we don't see that work out a whole lot, right? Uh, no. The the degree to which you would have to demonstrate that, and the the bias that courts and prosecutors tend, well, the bias and that the courts, Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah. And the Supreme Court uh, tend to have anybody trying to hold an individual officer to account uh, is, is pretty overwhelming. But that's the intent of it, right, is to right. disincentivize this kind of behavior because you might have a little skin in the game. Um, but also and additionally, a civil suit doesn't require the participation of the individual department who's involved or their supervisors or whoever your local prosecutor or DA happens to be. And so that helps to even the playing field somewhat, because if you're in a in an area with a progressive prosecutor, then and the pol- and a local police department uh, violates your uh, constitutional rights, then you are likely to receive some degree of in- internal investigation and, and looking into that. And you know, cities have paid out uh, damages to people who have had their rights violated, sometimes individually, sometimes uh, in in broad groups. But if you're not in an area where that's the case, then you have this secondary means of you know, attempting to recover damages for the violation of your rights. And so while both of these uh, recent decisions did, one in the context of Border Patrol um, assaulting, assaulting a man, and then after he reported that officer for assault, uh, that officer uh, informed the IRS – to begin an investigation against his business, so retaliated against him for that report. Um, So he uh, filed a civil suit that got decided, appealed, decided, appealed, went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, "Uh, actually, you can't do a civil suit against a Border Patrol agent because what they're doing is important. That's basically the effect uh, of the decision. It's, well, it's national security. Uh, Yes, uh, you have had permanent back injury since he threw you uh, onto your truck and then onto the ground. Uh, but again, he's a border patrol agent. So what, what did you expect? Like that's basically the opinion. Um, and then the, the one dealing with police is dealing with the uh, fifth amendment. If a police officer does not Mirandize you, or if they take, um, if they coerce testimony out of you in violation of the fifth amendment and then use that against you in court, the exclusionary rule still applies to the degree that you can demonstrate that it was in violation. Um, so it, you, you know the, the court won't knowingly produce that information to a jury. Um, but there is no even hypothetical consequence against the officer who did that. Um, so those are our two decisions that came down. Uh, simultaneous with, uh, and we don't need to get into it, but the decision um, restricting in, is it 100? And how old is the law in New York City against um, concealed carry without a permit? And they have kind of heightened, res- or heightened uh, requirements for a permit. Um, I think it's 108. I think it's a 108-year-old law overturned, um, which... With it goes, a number of other cities have have similar laws, and if you look at them statistically, they are uh, very low gun violence rate cities, which possibly correlates to the uh, strict enforcement against uh, the unlicensed carry of firearms. Um, but that that's overturned. So simultaneously, we're uh, stripping away what little gun control exists in this country and what little civil protections exist against having your rights violated by law enforcement officers uh, and simultaneously with shoring up the cultural power and political power of the Christian religion qua religion, the religion as such, um, simultaneous with uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Uh, So possibly the worst year ever for the yeah. Supreme court. It's up what's
0: there. what's interesting about this is there's there's no real unifying logic to all of these cases except for the fact that they are all 21st century ideological right, right? Because Th- they're not strictly originalist, right? In in the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we see a, a pretty clear reversal of precedent on, again, not a constitutional lawyer, but on pretty shoddy argumentation, pretty lo- pretty shoddy logic. Um, but the logic going back to, well, there's no, it, using the originalist thought, well, there's no explicit protection for abortion in the Constitution. Therefore, you know, we can't have it. So we have that on one hand. But then we have these other two cases with regard to the police, which is, are sort of anti-classical conservatism in the fact that they are pro-state might, pro-state use of violence, which theoretically is supposed to be at odds with traditional conservative values, which is limited government, right? But these seem to be expanding the role of government in these cases. And then you get to this case with with gun laws, and if you really apply a, a strict originalist Reading of that, it's remarkably clear based on the history that for for most of U.S. history, the Supreme Court has ruled in favor of gun control and against the notion that the Second Amendment was designed to provide free and unfettered access to any fu- weapons of your choosing. Um, that that was that was novel until the late twentieth century, uh, in, in which there was a a switch, due in large part to um, black people carrying guns, and then high levels of funding from the NRA. So,
1: but but don't you know? But don't you know that Clarence Thomas wrote the wrote the majority opinion on the overturning <laughs> the gun control law in New <laughs> York City?
0: Right, right. So yeah, you know the the the, the fame. No, it was basically Clarence it was Thomas, basically
1: right? 2011. It was basically 2011 when the Supreme Court sort of reversed course on what the Second Amendment means and pretended that it, no, it pretended that it does not say uh, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Uh, yes, we're just going to pretend that it's not about that. It's about uh, individuals getting to pack heat on the subway.
0: Right, and for for a a fast fascinating comprehensive read on this, uh, the book. Uh, the second amendment of biography by michael Waldman demonstrates this in in crystal clarity uh the the very clear ideological shift that happened um really in the in the late 20th century uh with regards to how, how this was viewed sort of following um i might be might be mixing resources here but following black panthers who were who were carrying guns all of a sudden people tried to restrict that and then the NRA gets involved, and all of a sudden, we have this this novel reinterpretation of the Second Amendment, which did not exist for basically the first two hundred years uh, in in Supreme Court rulings. So, I guess my whole point here is that originalism cannot be said to be the the underlying theme that's driving all of these classical right, conservatism. Right. So, what holds it together? Right. What holds it together is is just contemporary right wing ideology. And now I I will be the first to admit that I am not the most informed with regards to Supreme Court history. Um, I I didn't start getting politically active uh, really until a few years ago. And so I lived a lot of my life sort of in ignorance of what was going on. But this, we talk about truthiness, this really feels to me like the first time that I can remember that the Supreme Court has lost its legitimacy as even the vestige – is that the right word? – of an unbiased body interpreting constitutional law. And it it really just feels like we've got um, a bunch of ultra-conservatives on the court who know that they have the power, who are enforcing their ideological opinion and then justifying it post-hoc with whatever shoddy legal reasoning and and precedent they can come up with – when precedent suits them, and then tossing precedent when it doesn't. There does not seem to be any coherent thought, coherent pattern to their rulings, other than what does the current right wing want right now. Maybe that's cynical, but it feels true to me.
1: Yeah, and you have individuals on the court who do have their own particular lenses and their own ideological projects within that and of which i think clarence thomas's is maybe the most interesting but there is a yeah a broad adherence to well what does what does the right say today you know for for sam alito that's what does fox news say today for john roberts that's more uh what does uh What does the Columbia Law Review say today? Uh, So you know, there's slightly different flavors within that. Yeah, but certainly it's it's sort of a unique crisis within modern U.S. history, right? There have been times times in the past when there were crises between uh, of the court and its legitimacy uh, with respect to its relationship to the other branches, right? There's you know Andrew Jackson's famous the the court has stated the law, let them enforce it, um, which some people are suggesting that uh, Biden should imitate. I I think that that comes with some uh, significant disadvantages.
0: But I think to tie all this together with the ultimate aim of our project, um, at, at least three of the five cases that we've talked about here have deep roots in not just American right-wing politics, but far-right Christianity, right? Uh, we, we did a full episode on Roe v. Wade, so we, we don't need to rehash that. Um, but the religious liberty cases as well, uh, there is a lot of money and there is a lot of effort and there is a lot of um, conspiring among far-right religious people to influence public policy in the direction of Christian supremacy. uh, And we're seeing it have far-reaching effects. So the the things that are being talked about in Christian conferences, in in homeschool networks, in other things, um, are having far-reaching effects uh, beyond what they would otherwise. Uh, to the fact that we're seeing I mean, with most of these things pu- public opinion is is not where the court is right the court is is enforcing minoritarian principles uh that most of the public does not agree with but they have the power to do it and they have the power to do it because far-right christians have been organizing powerfully and effectively for a very long time to have these kind of outsized influences you know which again we're not we're not merely uh, disgruntled leftists. We are that. Um, but we're not merely disgruntled leftists. We're, we're seeing this in its religious base and our concern um, also as Christians. We identify as Christians, not far-right Christians. Um, but seeing the way that you know Christianity is being co-opted uh, to influence public policy in, in these directions um, in ways that maybe people aren't paying enough attention to. And that's sort of why <laughs> we do what we do.
1: Yeah, and, and just to layer on top of that, I, I think there's a real meagerness to the nature of journalism covering religion and specifically covering Christianity, right? Uh, there, there's a lot of shallow understanding of what it is and the complexities of the interpretation and the various subgroups within the church and even within the evangelical church. Um, it's it's a big field um, to try to gain specialty in and it's not funded particularly well at uh, major uh, major media outlets right or major journalistic enterprises right and so when I do hear coverage of these things I, I always sense that they are missing huge connections and things sometimes things that are obvious to me or some or at other times things that they just don't have sufficient uh, nuance in the way that they are able to describe that or can convey that to, to audiences. And so that's that's one of the real gaps that I perceived before uh, starting this project and coming into this is just the, you know, what's the, the three-circle Venn diagram of uh, leftist politics uh, Christian kind of uh, that there was a, a a real uh, real gap there
0: yeah well the, uh, the joke is always that they take the off-season sports writer to go report on the religious events right um they don't have to hire a religion reporter a- a- and it it ends up showing uh because either you you miss major connections or you have people who think that the southern baptist perspective is the christian perspective and they don't interview anybody else there's there's no um you know, it, it used to be that mainline leaders were the ones that the the journalists would go to. Um, but you have now sort of these far right wing Robert Jefferson, and Fox News. But even then, you have people who just don't know the religious landscape. And so they think that the Southern Baptists, while they're the largest Protestant denomination, they must speak for Christianity. Right. And so you're only getting one side um, of this. I saw some coverage recently about you know, lamenting the fact that Christians are celebrating the the overturning of Roe v. Wade would really, that's not true. If you pay attention, there are a lot of Christians and more mainline denominations who are lamenting this and who are criticizing it, but we don't hear from them so much in the pages of the newspapers right. or on the news, uh, because you're only hearing from the, the people, and I know, controversy sells, right? Um, but yeah, I think... I don't know if there are any major news networks who are watching this and want to hire a couple of religion reporters to do some in-depth analysis on the connection. Uh, Our handles are whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, I think all that say, I think you're you're right on. Well, this has been another episode of All the Rage at the Moment. We've been looking at uh, the January 6th commission hearings as well as some of the recent court cases coming from – Uh, the Supreme Court and our takes on those. Coming up next, we're going to hear a couple of episodes on um, mine and your religious history, sort of how we got here and why it matters to us. Uh, But until then, we'll see you next time.